tonight's word is from 1 Samuel chapter 28, verses 3 to 25. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him, and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they camped and camped at Gilboa. When Saul saw, saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night. And he said, Divine for me by spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? He said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, What is his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Then Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand, and I have listened to what you have said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you, and eat, that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants, together with the woman, urged him, and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly killed it 
And she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it. And she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they rose and away, went away that night. This is the word of the Lord. By all measures, Saul's life ends tragically. And because reading this tragedy is, is something like reading a Shakespearean play, uh, I emailed uh, Rob Stillman, a professor in our congregation who's a specialist in Shakespeare, and asked him to tell me about the role of tragedy. And in a very uh, literary email um, that was very well done, which I would sell to any of you who have him for a professor, um, he explained the idea of tragedy. He said it comes from Aristotle. A tragedy, according to Aristotle, is the story of a great man who falls, according to a tragic flaw in his character, and the audience experiences a kind of cleansing, watching him fall as they are awakened to uh, his actions and their consequences. Over the centuries, uh, writers have broadened the understanding of tragedy, uh, now writing stories about people from all walks of life who come to tragic ends. The best 20th century example, Arthur Miller's tragic hero, Willie Low Man, in Death of a Salesman. Uh, everyone, it seems, is capable of a tragic life. The Hebrew writers uh, were writing before Aristotle, but they seem to think about tragedy in a similar way. Uh, Saul, at least, appears to be a great man, but he has a tragic flaw. He does not love God. And over and over again, Saul fails to turn to God. He's religious, but religious is a kind of state prop that is a way for him to gain power. He never surrenders his life fully to God. Uh, he begins with a powerful anointing and even a charismatic baptism of the Spirit. Uh, there is a moment when he renews the covenant with Israel after his first victory, but, but soon we, we see his, his conflicted, divided heart. Uh, he panics on the battlefield, offers an unlawful sacrifice, he later will not fully follow through on the command to execute holy war. When he does win a victory, he builds a monument to himself. Uh, and maybe most damning of all, when the mantle of leadership passes to David, and it's very clear that Saul's time is over and David's time has come, instead of stepping back and getting behind David, as Jonathan did, and saying, it's your time now, let me see how I can empower you, Saul clings to power and tries to destroy David for really the rest of his life. Now, we're fast-forwarding ahead now. We've skipped over a number of chapters that have watched David uh, rise to power, watch Saul's jealousy consume him. Uh, and at one level, when we get to chapter 28, if you were just reading the, the headlines from the Jerusalem Times, it, it would look like, Saul was doing well, because David now is driven out of the kingdom entirely. It looks like Saul has consolidated power. But actually what's happening is Saul's heart is stiffening, and his internal world is beginning 
to entirely come undone. And tonight's story, we witness the tragic end of King Saul. Now, why is a story like this in our Bibles? Probably for the same reason that so many stories are like this in the canon of world literature. Because we can learn from tragedies. We can learn what happens when you have flaws in your character that instead of turning over to God, you turn towards them and feed them. Saul offers a picture of what happens when we harden our hearts to the Lord. Now, you might be thinking, well, but that's in the Old Testament. That can't happen to us. Well, no. Uh, The Old Testament and the New Testament both warn of the danger of hardening our hearts. Hebrews 3.7 Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. Take care, lest there be in you any evil. Jesus in Matthew 24.11 warns that the day will come when Christians' hearts will grow cold. Uh, The angel of Revelation warns the church of Ephesus of losing their first love. Now, one of the things that that, that we're not going to talk much about tonight, but you may be asking is, does that mean that the believer can lose your salvation? Is that what the story is teaching? And, and, uh, you know, I I must say that there's there's a a strong tradition in, in the Christian church that believes that, yes, you can. Catholic churches teach that. Wesleyan churches teach that. I personally don't believe you can lose your salvation. I've always clung to John 10, 27, where Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. That's always where I've begun uh, my, my thinking about that question personally. But what I think is clear is that you can, as a Christian, harden your heart. You can, even as a Christian, end in a tragic way. And that's what we're going to look at tonight. Now, Saul is fearful of the troop mass to the north, and he turns to the Lord for guidance. And he does that in the normal ways. He wants to consult the priests and the ephod and the urim. And God is silent. Now, now that may seem uh, unfair of God. It may seem unjust of God. Uh, but we need to remember a little bit of the backstory here. The two main ways that a Hebrew king would consult God would be through uh, a prophet and through uh, the priests. Now, Samuel, the prophet, is dead. And Saul never listened to him anyway. So time and time and time again, Saul would say things, or Samuel would say things to Saul, and Saul wouldn't do it. Now, what about the priests? Well, if you go back to the first Samuel 23 and 22, one of the things that you see that Saul caught wind that the priests at Nob, a commu- kind of a monastic community of priests, were harboring David, and so Saul sent troops and massacred the entire community of priests. And one of them escaped. His name was Abiathar. He took the ephod. 
He went to David and helped David discern the will of the Lord. So why is Saul having a hard time hearing God? Because the one prophet who he ignored continually has died and he killed all the priests. So it's understandable, I think, why the Lord is silent. Now, many people living in that day were pursuing God in other ways, and we would call this um, the occult. And God actually has a lot to say in the Old Testament about the occult. And by that I mean uh, trying to discern God's will or to seek security or power outside of the Lord. That would be what the occult is. For example, Leviticus 19.31 commands, Do not turn to mediums or wizards. Do not seek them out, and so make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 18.10 There shall not be found among you anyone who practices divinization or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer of a medium or a wizard or a necromancer. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. Now, I think if the Lord was writing today, uh, and and I'm quite serious about this, I think he would include in that list uh, occultic games, tarot cards, Ouija boards, astrology. Uh, I think he would include all the paranormal uh, television shows. Uh, I think think it's very clear in Scripture these things are not games to be played with. And Saul, uh, evidently in, in, a, in a moment of reform, had put them back on the books. Evidently the people of God had forgotten about them, and, and Saul had, had banned them again. But now he violates his own reform measures because he's desperate. He's not hearing anything from the Lord. And so instead of repenting, instead of Psalm 51, which is where David repents and turns back to the Lord, Saul goes and finds a medium, which we might translate as, as, as a witch, someone who calls up, it means ghost caller in, in Hebrew. And by the way, some modern Christians think that, uh, well, for believers, we understand that all this stuff is superstition. We don't need to worry about it. That's precisely not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches it's not superstition. It's very real, and you need to stay away from it uh, at all costs. So, Saul turns against his own command and goes to pursue a a, a witch. And I I think this is one of the the symptoms that our heart is becoming hard. You know, we talk about the symptoms of heart disease. Well, think of this as the signs of spiritual heart disease. Is that you find yourself acting in ways that are inconsistent with who you are. You're going against your own values, your own beliefs. You look at something that you've done or said, and you think, who was that? That's not me. That's where Saul is at this point of the story. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went. He and two men with him, and they came to the woman by night. So if you can imagine this story... Saul would have had a kind of royal robe with an insignia on it. And he knows this isn't where he's supposed to be. So he finds some garments from some uh, peasant or or soldier, and he wraps them up in the garment. 
and Endor was kind of in this backwoods place, uh, not, not in the beaten path. And, and so he heads off in the dark with two servants uh, with this camouflage outfit on. And, and I think that is another sign of spiritual heart disease, is, is that when we go down this path, when we, when we move away from repentance and more towards self, one of the things that starts to happen, one of the surefire signs is hiding things, is secrecy, is covering things up, is lying. We start to shade the truth. We leave out a few details to make ourselves look better. Uh, and over time, we might not even know we're doing it. I remember a guy, uh, this was even before the Internet got too far going, he was telling me about his struggle with pornography, and he was a, a pretty well-known guy in the community, and, uh, but, he, but he just had to go out and get those magazines. And he told me how he would wait till a certain time of the day when it was dark, and how then he had a certain jacket with a large kind of back hood on it, He'd wear a baseball cap and dark glasses so that he could get in and out of the store to buy the magazine. Whenever you're hiding something, whenever you're disguising yourself, it's a sign that, that something's gone wrong in your heart. 1 John 1, 6. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. You know, we, we work very hard to protect our privacy today, and we should. And so now everything's pass-protected, and we have passwords to get into our Gmail and our texting and all that, and that's all understandable. But I wonder if one of the reasons we're so serious about passwords and codes is because we're not comfortable with the idea that someone might read what I actually texted. And we're not comfortable with the idea that someone might see some of the websites I went on. We're not comfortable with the idea that someone might read my email. If, if there's a pattern emerging in your life of you doing and saying things online or anywhere else that you would not want your people to know, that's a sign that something's gone wrong in your heart. And of course, an even subtler way we do this is in our relationships, and we're all good at this. We get together, we do what we call it also, as we turn our chairs, we come together in small group or Bible study, and we're supposed to be sharing our lives. But you start to disguise your life. You, you share what you want to share but not what you need to share. We, we hide from each other. Now, I understand. We don't want to be doing that everywhere. There's 
there's appropriate ways to do it, inappropriate ways to do it. But if there's no one in your life with whom you can take off your disguise, your, your heart's in danger. Let me just, just ask it. We'll just say it as we get ready for Lent. Are you hiding anything? Proverbs 28:13 Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. If you are, grab one of your people and tell them tonight. That's the way out. That's what Saul didn't do. There's hope, there's grace, there's forgiveness, there's mercy, there's healing, but only if you bring it into the light. Well, Saul gets into the seance, and she does summon the spirit of Samuel. Samuel is not helpful to him. He says, why do you ask me, since the Lord's turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your right hand, given it to David. You didn't obey the voice of the Lord. You didn't carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. The Lord has done this to you. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. Now that sounds harsh. It's not what we expect God, God's spokesman would say. But again, remember, very different story with David. When David repents, he restored the fellowship with God. But, but Samuel has told Saul many, many, many times when he has come wanting to be the king that he is no longer supposed to be, Samuel has said, no. And Saul, rather than saying, I get it, I lay down my power, I support David, I repent of my ego, I will get out of the way, I will retire. Saul has clung to his demand. And so is it any wonder that when he calls the guy up from the dead, he gets the same answer? No! And I wonder how much of our own disappointment with the Lord is our refusal to take no for an answer. Our, our refusal to surrender to His will, to accept His plan for our life. And instead we just go back and back and back and back, and then when He doesn't give us to us, we go find a witch. When He doesn't give it to us, we go find some other way to get it done, and then we wonder, why don't you answer my prayers? And He's saying, I did. No. Is there a no in your life that you're stuck on? And rather than moving forward into God's yes, rather than embracing the path that he has given you, you are stuck on the no. Well, why not? Well, she does. Well, can't I? Well, wouldn't it be? Well, what if I? Have you moved? 
or are you stuck on the no? Saul simply cannot accept God's word for his life. And so stung by a fateful prophecy, he falls to the ground. This is a, a pathetic it really does look like a Shakespeare play. Remember, if table fellowship in that culture was, was intimacy, the only person on the planet who will have dinner with Saul is a witch who was scared to death. She, she is the only person in the story that does anything remotely moral by trying to care for the guy. He ends alone and in fellowship with all the wrong people. It's a tragic ending. He walks into the night and he's killed in battle the next day. Psalm 20 or Proverbs 28, 14. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. That's what this story is about. It's a case study of what happens when we harden our heart. Now, Isaiah describes this process as our heart growing fat. And that can easily happen over the course of a year. Life is hard. Sin is in our flesh. We are disappointed. We struggle. It's very easy over the course of a year for our hearts to grow fat and dull and sluggish. And that is why the church practices Lent. Lent begins Wednesday with Ash Wednesday. It's a 40-day spiritual retreat. It gives us an opportunity to discern a spiritual heart disease. It's like an annual checkup. And, and, and typically Christians have gone about that in two ways. Traditionally, one is that they carve out a little more time for study of God's Word and, and self-examination in prayer. And, and one of the ways that, that many Christians will try that is they will adopt a different Bible study plan during Lent, or a different devotional pattern. Um, this year, I'm going to work through part of this book, The Ignatian Adventure, Experiencing the Spiritual Exercises of St. Ignatius in Daily Life. Every year, I try to do something different. Um, I know uh, one person who's going to go through the Passion in John. Um, there's all sorts of different ways to do this. Uh, there's a number of people in our body, uh, Suzanne Hassel, David Geig, uh, a, a number that have lots of different devotional resources, um, Polly Tullock, Mary Baldridge. Um, if you don't know them, we'll direct you to them. If you're looking for something you'd like to do during Lent, there's lots of guidance uh, available. But also, Christians traditionally withdraw things from our life that, that open space for God. And I just want to take a moment to talk about this because Many of the ways that we fast during Lent are simply not helpful at all. And, and they really do no good. They're, they're, they're just exercise in, in willpower. And what I would encourage you to do is to pray about what is it in your life that would be good for 40 days to withdraw from to create space in your life for God? What, what habit or activity uh, have maybe you given too much power to over the past year? Uh, maybe it's too important to your life over this past year. Uh, what, could, what could you withdraw for a month to meet God? Um, I was talking with a young writer in our congregation who's got a writer's block, and they're three-fourths of the way done with a book. And we, we talked about 
the reasons why he couldn't finish the book. And so I said, well, during Lent, why don't you fast one night a week from TV and finish your book? I was talking to another young lady who was withdrawing and found herself pulling away from community and she was isolating herself. I said, well, why don't you fast one night a week from being alone in your room and be with a friend? For, for me this year, it's a, not very spiritual, but I'm going to try to give up processed foods, especially sugar, because I just have this thing about cookies every night before I go to bed. I've got a little bucket of them, and it, it's become part of my ritual. And uh, I'm in a bad mood if I don't get one. And <laughs> so you guys are laughing at me. Give me a break. And I'm going to try to see if I can get by with a little less or processed food. So what is it for you? Uh, the, the other thing that I'd suggest with all this is let's try to do this as much as we can in community. It doesn't just have to be something you do alone. There ought to be a few people who you talk with about it. You talk about what God is doing in the middle of it. You talk about what you're learning. That's an important part of the Lenten fast. Uh, as you go through your fast, look for the signs of spiritual heart disease that we've discerned tonight from Saul's story. I'll just mention a few of them again. Uh, silence from God. Now, none of these alone are always a sign that something's wrong, but it could be. Living a divided life. Hiding. Demandingness. Estrangement from God and others. The people you feel safest with are not turned towards God. A lack of repentance and a consequential hopelessness and despair. Let's pray.